The book of Isaiah is a composite work. It is composed of the writings of different prophets who lived at different times, prophesied in different contexts, and emphasized different aspects of how God works in the world. This morning's reading from Isaiah comes from the section of that book known as Second Isaiah, and it's believed to have been written in the, to the Israelites living in Babylon toward the end of their 58-year exile. It's a message of hope in the midst of a very dark time. In the verses just before today's passage, Second Isaiah has been telling the people to get ready, saying on behalf of God, Incline your ear and come to me. Listen so that you may live. The prophet tells the people that God is making an everlasting covenant, not just with the line of King David, but with the whole nation of Israel. God will lead them out of exile in joy, and they will be led back in peace. All of creation will participate in the celebratory procession. The mountains and hills will burst into song, and the trees of the field will clap. The cypress will spring up in place of thorns, and the evergreen myrtle in place of briars. Other nations will be drawn into the festivities as well. For a few verses earlier, the prophet declares to Israel, You shall call nations that you do not know, and nations that do not know you shall run to you. Now I suspect that this was a hard message for Israel to believe. It was beyond anything she could imagine. Most of those to whom Second Isaiah prophesied had never even seen Jerusalem. The idea that God was going to come and free them to renew a promise given to King David 500 years earlier and bring them back to a land they had entered first after the first Exodus 700 years before, well, most likely that all seemed preposterous. It was an absurd thing to proclaim. But this is often precisely the prophet's task. It's been said that the job description of the prophet contains, among other less than coveted tasks, the ability to speak a life-giving word of hope when all the events seem to point to the contrary. And to be honest, Israel's current situation pointed against any such second exodus. Technically, the definition of an exodus is the departure or leaving of a large number of people. But when we think of an exodus in biblical terms, we tend to think not just of departure, but also of arrival, of destination. Maybe that's because we know something of how God works in the world. As the prophet says, the rain and snow come down from heaven and don't evaporate until their purpose has been accomplished, until they water the earth, bringing forth food to eat and seed for future years. Just so, the word that goes forth from God's mouth, the purpose God has for the world, will not return empty. It succeeds in bringing forth the harvest it intends. It succeeds in making God's dreams for the world a reality. Not just 2,500 years ago, but today as well. See, the Exodus is not just something God did once for the Hebrews in Egypt, or yet again for the exiles in Babylon or even most importantly for our Lord Jesus when he lay in the tomb. Exodus is something God does again and again. It's who God is. Bringing us again and again from bondage to freedom, from exile back home, 
from death into life. So what are our exoduses today? Where are the places from which we need deliverance? Where do we long for freedom, life, and salvation? And what does Exodus look like for others with whom we share this earth? For the thousands of children flooding our borders in search of safety, food, opportunities, and a new life. Do we even dare to expect God's dreams to become reality? Or is that more than we can bring ourselves to hope for? God is in the resurrection business of bringing freedom and life in places we would never expect. That's the good news. That's the gospel. But bottom line, can we trust this good news? When we look at the world around us, it can be hard to believe that God can do the impossible. It can be hard to believe that God's dream for a world of abundance, a world where everyone has enough, it's hard to believe that dream can actually become a reality. Just like I'm sure it was hard for Israel to believe in such a world as she lay exiled in Babylon. But the role of God's people is to raise this dream up for the world. To be the fertile soil in which this dream takes root and goes on to bear more fruit than anyone could ever imagine. Thirty, sixty, or a hundredfold. In 1984, Beryl and Peter Bainan from Beverly, England, established the charity known as the Jacob's Well Appeal. Initially, the charity's mission was to supply badly needed medical supplies to Poland. But in time, its work spread across Eastern Europe and to Asia, Lebanon, and Africa. They now send not just medical supplies, but also food, clothing, educational supplies, agricultural tools, and building equipment. Beryl tells the story of how at one point, what had seemed like an impossible mission to do became one that was impossible not to do. The Bainans, two physicians, had been asked to fund medicines and medical equipment if they could for a hospital in an industrial city in Poland. When they arrived with the medications, they were taken into the dialysis unit of the children's hospital. There was only one dialysis machine that would treat just four children, and that machine was to serve the whole northern half of Poland. The Polish physicians asked Beryl to please send dialysis catheters in two sizes for the smaller patients. When she returned to England, she found that the catheters cost 50 pounds each and that she could only buy them in packs of 10. So she ended up with what she called quite a big bill in a very small box. She thought to herself, I'll have to tell these Polish doctors that we really can't afford this sort of thing. She tells the rest of the story this way, and these are in her own words. When I got back to Poland next time, they put this little baby, Mechek, five months old into my hands. He was smiling away at me, and I knew he'd only survived because of our 50-pound catheter, and he wouldn't have been there without it. You know, all of a sudden, it was very cheap. It wasn't expensive anymore. It was one lesson for us. Holding that baby, what had seemed impossible became too precious, too real, not to be possible. 
The words we read this morning from Isaiah paint a beautiful picture of exodus and return, of resurrection and freedom and salvation. These words are addressed not only to the Israelites living in exile, they are also addressed to us. We're to hold this beautiful image just as Beryl Bainan held the five-month-old Machek, letting the image become so real and so precious to us that we find it impossible for it not to be possible. As the church, it's our job to hold this image up to the world as a possibility, even at a time when all the events of the world seem to point to the contrary. Instead of giving way to the skepticism of the hardened path, or the short-lived enthusiasm of the rocky soil, or the overstretched and overworried soil among the thorns, we are to be fertile ground for the gospel. We are called to let the gospel take root in us so deeply that it transforms our lives, bringing forth a harvest of grace greater than anything we can imagine. We are called to dream God's dream so vividly that we live it in our lives.